So help us be attentive once again to what we're going to read. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the previous chapter, if you were with us in our study of Revelation um, chapter 6, we saw what began to describe to us that final seven-year period that's right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is what we looked at in Daniel chapter 9, formerly known as the 70th week of Daniel. It's also known as the tribulation period. And we saw in uh, chapter 6, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, begin to open up that seven-seal scroll that we see in the heavenly scene of chapter 5. And in chapter 6, the first six seals we read were opened up. The first four, a rider came on a horse called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And again, that we've heard that term uh, before. Even non-Christians hear that term. But what is interesting is that non-Christians don't really know what it means. They know it's not good. And even Christians really don't have an idea what the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, what that's all about. But we do because we saw that the first rider was on a white horse. We identified him as the one who's going to take center stage in this tribulation period. He's called the Antichrist. And he's going to come on the scene. He has a crown, which means that he's a ruler. He is coming, conquering and to conquer. Uh, he has a bow, but not an arrow. And so it correlates to what we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that he's going to make a covenant with Israel for a week. That term week in Daniel means a seven-year period. So he's going to come along. He's going to seemingly be a peacemaker that's going to make a covenant with Israel for a seven-year period. He's going to confirm a covenant. And seemingly, it's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temples. What many scholars believe is going to be one of the results of that. Because what we will see here in the book of Revelation is that there is going to be a temple. There's going to be what's called the Tribulation Temple. And, and uh, it is the Antichrist that will go into that uh, tribulation temple in the middle of the week and what is called the abomination of desolation. That's a very important point in this seven-year period, the halfway mark, and we'll talk more in detail about that. But this, this Antichrist is going to come out of this revived Roman Empire. Daniel painstakingly tells us that in his visions of Daniel chapter 2, well, when he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then the dream he had in chapter 7. But we also know that he's going to be a world leader that's going to be not only a political leader, he's going to be an economic leader because he's going to demand the world to worship him. And you cannot uh, buy or sell without making your allegiance to him. He's going to be a military leader as well because we're going to see at the end of the seven-year period that the Antichrist and his forces are going to be involved in that final world war called the Battle of Armageddon. And he's going to be a religious leader as well because he is directly influenced by Satan. And one of the things that Satan has always wanted is to be worshipped, right? Remember he took Jesus up on that mountain and said, bow down and worship me and all the kingdoms are yours. We know that Satan wanted to sit upon the throne in his pride, the book of Isaiah tells us, and he was cast down uh, out of heaven. So he's going to be a religious leader that is going to demand the world to worship him. And so he is taking center stage here in this seven-year period called 
called the tribulation period. He comes conquering and the conqueror. He comes initially by peaceful means, but then he will show his true colors. Uh, there is going to be the second rider that comes. And we read the uh, one on the red horse took away pe uh, you know, peace from the earth and, and war would take place and conflict happened. And then the third rider on a black horse, scarcity on the earth, and, and there was high inflation. And then the fourth rider, a pale horse, and his name was Death and Hades followed him. And after the first four seals are opened up, after these four riders, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four seals opened up, that is, that we know a quarter of the earth was killed. That's a lot of people. That's nearly two billion people in today's population. So there's going to be many that are going to uh, be put to death in this tribulation period. The post-rapture world is going to be vastly different than what we know. And Jesus, when he talked about the signs that are going to be like labor pains, uh, the, a woman given birth uh, you know, pains that she goes through before she delivers a baby, it, it, these signs are going to happen more frequently in intensity, and they're going to come to full culmination during this seven-year period called the tribulation period. We know that the fifth seal was the cry of the martyrs. What we're going to see is them uh, that are going to be martyred in the tribulation period, even tonight. And then the sixth seal was opened up, and there was a great cosmic disturbance and great geologic upheaval as every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And it is believed that perhaps at that time that as uh, there's going to be a huge worldwide earthquake and, and geologic upheaval, as I mentioned, that the earth perhaps is going to rotate on its axis. And, and those are the things, heavy things that are happening, and then the sky is going to roll up like a scroll, and it's going to be the kings of the earth, and, and those who dwell on the earth, who are going to say, hide us from the one who sits on the throne. That absolutely amazes me when I read that. Hide and, and fall on this from the face of him who sits on the throne, verse 16, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And, and so instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, they say, hide from Hide us from them. It shows the hardness of, of, of man's heart. So the first six seals are opened up. Now, I do want to say this. There are some scholars that believe that chapter 6 is an overall description of the tribulation period. Dr. John Wolvo, he, he is a foremost scholar, was. Uh, I got many of his resources and books upstairs um, uh, that wrote on uh, end-time prophecy. Uh, he suggests that perhaps chapter 6, that uh, the rider on the white horse uh, is the first three and a half years, the Antichrist conquering them to conquer, and then in, in the second rider, when war breaks out begins that that second half that's called the great tribulation period so some believe that it's given us a description more of the the whole tribulation period there are other scholars that say no that it's more chronological that this is all happening in the first three and a half years are we going to be dogmatic about it um, I, I think there's a case uh, for both who have those thoughts, because what we're going to read here in chapter 7, matter of fact, after these things, that's a very important word that we read in the book of Revelation, metatata, uh, after chapter 3, chapter 4 began with what? After these things. 
after the church age, now after the sixth seal is opened up, after these things. So that's why there are some that suggest that it's chronological. There are those who will come along and say that the first three and a half years, because as we go through this book, listen, that, that it seems to be divided up, the tribulation period. We're going to read terms like times, times, and a half times. That's three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, right? And, and, and so we're going to see that, um, that it's divided up to where there's an emphasis on the last three and a half years that Jesus called the great tribulation period. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation that's going to happen in the middle of this seven-year period, that there's going to be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. So that's when perhaps war is going to break out. That's when we see these famines and pestilence come to its culmination. So it very well could be the case. That's what it's given us uh, a picture of. Now, don't think that the first three and a half years, there are some that teach it's going to be a utopia and the Antichrist is going to bring this great peace and everything's going to be great in all of this. Listen to two witnesses of chapter 11 that it says that the, they witnessed for 42 months, the first three and a half years. And when they end up dying, it says that those who dwell on the earth, the world's going to break out in celebration because they had tormented those on the earth. They, they tormented those men on the earth for 42 months, the first three and a half years. We'll read that. It doesn't sound like a party to me. So there's going to be tribulation that is going to be taking place in the first three and a half years. And we'll talk more specifically about it. But now as we move into chapter 7, we're going to see that John in his vision will be presented. Two groups of people we're going to see that are in the tribulation that are saved. Uh, chapter 7 is a little information that is given to us before we see the seventh seal that is opened up. It's kind of like this divine intermission, if you would. This interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. It's kind of like a, a timeout, if you would. And what we're going to see is the calling of the ministry of the 144,000. Let's begin to, to read it as we read after these things in verse 1 of chapter 7 of Revelation. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or in, on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So people say that, you know, you really can't take the Bible literally uh, because we know that there isn't four corners of the earth. It's, we know that as we read this, the, the Bible is, you know, does use poetic terms and figures of speech. And we know that this is a figure of speech. It's even used today, isn't it? Matter of fact, uh, the Marines, I believe, and they're re recruiting and their advertisement, they talk about our Marines are stationed on the four corners of the earth. So we know that it's an expression that is used today. But the word does say some fascinating things about the world, written long before it was really even known that the world was indeed round. Uh, at the time the, the Bible was being written, people thought that the world was flat. In, in India, they thought that the world was being supported by a huge elephant. 
Greek philosophy, you know, they thought the world was being supported by a strong man named Atlas. You, you know, Atlas and the strong guy and, and the statue of all of that. What is fascinating that in Isaiah chapter 42, written 2,700 years ago, that it tells us that the earth is round. That God, he sits above the circle of the earth long before it was believed that the world was round. Job, the oldest book is believed of, of the Bible, uh, says that he hangs the earth on nothing. So the Bible comes along, and it's amazing what the Bible declares. Now, as we read this, during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, as the Antichrist is setting up his kingdom, he's conquering on the conquer, he's riding with a bow without a, uh, an arrow, uh, conquering, first of all, by perhaps diplomatic means, he will come on the scene as a man of peace. But during that first three and a half years, there is going to be a ministry of the 144,000 that we're going to read about here. And, and there's going to be the two witnesses that I've already mentioned that will be on the scene. When we see those two witnesses in Jerusalem in chapter 11, they're going to bear witness for 42 months. And during that time, it tells us in chapter 11 that they're going to shut up the heavens to where it won't rain. It's going to be dry for three and a half years. And I think that it could help lead to that famine that is described in the third seal that we saw last week in chapter 6. Um, you know, the holding back of the four winds by these four angels uh, in which causes the rain to stop, to cease, because the hydraulic cycle uh, in, you know, our nation and around the world is dependent upon wind, isn't it? So as the wind, as they hold back the four winds, that is a judgment almost in itself because we know that fronts and clouds are moved over land masses. Um, we know that it's dependent upon that. And in verse 2, there's another ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, saying to the four angels, do not harm the earth, the seas, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So don't release this judgment until the servants of God are sealed. So they're holding back the four winds. Um, that in itself is going to cease the, the rain. There's no fronts. There's no, you know, uh, patterns that we have the weather, um, pollution settles into the cities, but then it begins to talk about sealing the servants of, of God that we're going to read about, these 144,000. Now, before we get into that, this whole idea of being sealed, we see that in the New Testament. For example, in the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians takes us to the heavenlies, doesn't it? And it tells us of all the, the, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And as you read verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us that you and I as believers, that we are sealed that we are marked in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then Paul goes on to write in chapter 4, verse 30, that do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this whole idea of being sealed is very important. It's a very powerful truth that is given to us. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has anointed us, set his seal of ownership over us, has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the New Testament, the seal, 
is the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer working in us that we belong to God. And it's an indication of ownership and protection. And it is like um, cattle in the West. Uh, those of you who have uh, raised cattle, there is a cattle that is branded. And those cows belong to a certain rancher. In the timber industry, logging companies seal trees indicating as they brand those trees that those trees belong to them, that logging company. So the word seal here is used 36 times in the New Testament, 27 times in the book of Revelation. It is a very strong word. When we get to um, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when we get to chapter 20, then an angel is going to come and take Satan and is going to bound him up and throw him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And the bottomless pit is going to be sealed. It's going to be sealed to where he can't get out. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a guarantee that shows me the security of a believer in Christ. So here, as these are going to be sealed, we also see it in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 9. There is about to be judgment that would come to the city of Jerusalem. And in Ezekiel's chapters 7 and 8, uh, it speaks of Israel's descent into idolatry and, and the corrupt hearts of the religious leaders and the coming judgment of God because of sin. Before God judges the nation, he goes through the city and he seals those who grieved and repent over the sin of idolatry and wickedness. So the seal provided protection against the judgment that was coming upon the whole city. And now we see an identical picture is given to the Apostle John here in the book of Revelation. Judgment is coming on the land, but before judgment comes, the seal of the living God is placed on, interesting, the foreheads of his servants. Those who are sealed are protected, and we're going to see that. Now, it's interesting that there is going to be another group that is going to be sealed uh, that will take a mark. Those who have rebelled against God, we will see. They will take a mark on their foreheads or on their right hand. It's called the mark of the beast. We will see that in Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 14 tells us that if you're sealed with that mark, if you take that mark of the beast, there's no hope of salvation. So again, it shows us that that idea of being sealed is a very strong concept. And it will allow people, uh, as you know, they take the mark of the beast to be able to buy or sell at that time. We'll, we'll read it when we get to that chapter. And the technology is all there for that to happen. It's absolutely incredible. Now, when you take his mark, you're making your allegiance to the Antichrist, the beast. Those who refuse to take the mark will not be protected by the Antichrist, and they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to lose their heads. So as we look at this concept of sealing, again, we see it all throughout the Scriptures, particularly it's given to us in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And in verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So God seals on these 144,000 of the children of Israel is what is told to us. Um, they were sealed, and uh, their general identification has been given to us. They are Jewish. Did you notice that? 
it makes it very clear, especially when we're going to read verses 5 through 8 here in just a little bit. But it does amaze me how there, there have been those who have come along and said, well, we're at 144,000. I've even had a few people over the years tell me outside in the front door that they belong to the 144,000. And I'll begin to ask them, why do you think that you are one of the 144,000? Well, you know, God told me in a vision. And, you know, I say, okay, um, you got your wife here, you got kids, you got grandkids. Uh, what the Bible says, 144,000, that they're virgins and they're not given in marriage. How can you fit into that category? Well, it's an exception. You know, just weird stuff that people tell me about. I can be confident you're not part of the 144,000. Um, we know that the Jehovah Witnesses said that they were the 144,000. And when they reached the, that membership over that number, they changed the rules a bit and said, well, we're still the 144,000. 4,000, the best of us, we're going to be the 144,000 with Jehovah up in heaven, and the rest of us are going to be, you know, in the earthly hope and all this other stuff. Uh, I remember when I was in college, there was Herbert W. Armstrong that had a radio program, and, and he came along with his group and said that his group was 144,000. Now, since his passing years ago, the new leaders have brought them back more in line with biblical truth. But, you know, he would teach, if you double and triple your tithes to the church, you just might be one of those 144,000. Even as you do research, Brigham Young, one of the first leaders of the Mormon church, in his writings alludes to the point that they were the 144,000, the Mormons. So, you know, since then they've re-explained it and rewritten on that issue. The children of God, those of you that might be just a little bit older, you know, old hippies of the 60s, that they claimed to be 144,000. They were really big at that time in America. Not anymore. They're still around mostly in Asia. There are those who teach that, that the 144,000 is the church in general. Those who hold to the replacement theology will say, well, the 144,000 is just a number of totality, and this is the church in general. Um, and they say that because they believe that the church is spiritual Israel. We have talked about quite extensively in our studies about replacement theology. And if you don't know what that is, replacement theology teaches that the church has replaced Israel, that God is through with his promises with Israel, uh, that Israel being a nation right now is just a coincidence, and, and those promises have been forfeited, so we replace Israel, and we're spiritual Israel. The problem is, is that it really doesn't line up with what the scripture says at all. There are evangelical pastors that hold to that view, and it seems to be growing. It, it's, to me, it's concerning. And, and um, you know, the, the Bible doesn't say that the church comes and replaces Israel. As we've gone through Isaiah, and we're going to continue, as we go back to the Old Testament, we're going to see that the Lord says that I will keep my promise to Israel, that I'm not through with Israel. Remember our Roman study? Has God cast away his people? Paul writes in chapter 11 of, of Romans. He says, certainly not. God still has a plan for them. And in that day, when they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, all of Israel will be saved. 
So we see that Israel being back in the land, many of these prophecies that we're going to read about cannot happen unless Israel is a physical nation once again. And we see God working, and he's going to bring those promises to pass as he gave to them. Yeah, we've seen in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, you know, tells us that there's still one more week where God is going to focus on, you know, Israel. And so that's a part of what's taking place in this tribulation period. We need to understand that. It's not only God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world, but he's dealing with the nation of Israel. And, and we will see at this time, again, the two witnesses working one of the prerequisites of Jesus' return is right before he comes that they do open up their eyes and recognize him as Messiah. Even Jesus said, as he wept over Jerusalem, he said that you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There will be that time. Zechariah says that they will ask him when they see him, where did you get those wounds as they mourn for him? And he will respond, I got these in the house of my friends. So at the end of the tribulation period, Joel chapter 2 talks about, as it seems like they're going to go under the battle of Armageddon, that they're going to be destroyed, that they will call for a fast, they will pray, and the Lord will hear them and open up their eyes. So it's pretty obvious to me that the 144,000 are none other than, you know, what we see here of the tribes of the children of Israel. So just so we don't miss the point, let's, let's read that in verse 5. We see that of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. And he goes on in verses 6 through 8. The tribe of Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, and Levi. Uh, the tribe of Issachar, verse 8. The tribe of Zebulon and the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So we have here these, these 12 tribes listed here times 12,000 is 144,000. So they're not the Jehovah Witnesses. They're not the Mormons. They're, it's not the church. It's not the worldwide church of God or whoever else claims to be. They are all of the tribes of the children of Israel. Then we see 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Now, I don't know how the Lord can make it any clearer, any plainer, simpler than that. Now, a couple things about these 144,000. Notice it is a list of the tribe of Joseph that's listed here that um, we read about in verse 8. You may be thinking, I don't remember a tribe of Joseph. When you read Numbers chapter 2 or in Joshua when the land was divided among the tribes, keep in mind that Jacob, you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, uh, Jacob's favorite. He ended up in Egypt. You read about all those chapters of Joseph there in Egypt, thrown in, in the dungeon, brought up. He interpreted a dream for Pharaoh. He becomes the prime minister. Well, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob said to Joseph there in Genesis, these two sons are mine. And so Ephraim and Manasseh both became tribes of Israel. So the tribe of Joseph was divided into two. So you can say that really there's 13 tribes in a sense. 
But remember that the tribe of Levi was set apart. Remember that they didn't have an inheritance of land. They were the priestly uh, tribe. There were certain cities that were Levitical cities that they lived in, but they didn't have land, and then they were tied to by the rest of the other 12 tribes. The Lord said, I'll be your inheritance. They served in the tabernacle. They, in the wilderness wandering, camped around the tabernacle. That's where Moses and Aaron was. So Levi wasn't listed with the other 12 usually, and Joseph was divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. All right? You got that down. So, and as you read this list, what is interesting, Joseph is listed and Levi is listed. So the quiz is, real quickly, who's left out? One is Ephraim, and the other is Dan. So you say, why are they left out? It could be that Ephraim is included with Joseph. But also in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the Lord gives a warning against those who would be involved in idolatry. The Lord would not spare them, and the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against them. And the Lord would, would speak to them from you know, the tribes of Israel. So they're going to be cut off from the other tribes. Now, eventually, they all got involved in idol worship. But the tribe of Dan, you might recall in Judges, was the tribe that introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel, as you read in Judges chapter 18. You see, they had their allotment kind of between where Jerusalem or Judah was and the coast where the Philistines were. Samson, he was of the tribe of, of Dan. But they were always warring with the Philistines, being attacked by the Philistines. So they decide, we're going to go somewhere else. This is too difficult. So what they did is they ended up moving up north uh, where it was easier above the Sea of Galilee. You read about that in the book of Judges. They found themselves exposed to pagan idolatry. They ended up building an altar of a golden calf. When Jeroboam, after Solomon, uh, that he comes on as the first king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, he sets up uh, an altar, a, a, a temple uh, that was in Dan, dedicated to the golden calf. The other was in Bethel, which is in the tribe of Ephraim. So Hosea, as you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, is joined to idols, Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. So they could be excluded with Dan because of that. That's a thought. Now, others say, this is interesting for you who like to chew on these things and study a little bit further. Others say that Dan is left out because we read in Genesis chapter 49, verse 17, that Dan shall be a serpent when Jacob was prophesying over his sons. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backwards. Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, if you want to jot this down, tells us that the Antichrist, uh, that he regards neither the God of his fathers. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 16, the, the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. So what has happened is rabbinical teachers have taught for many, many years that out of the tribe of Dan would come a false messiah. 
and that there are those who have suggested that out of the tribe of Dan, that the Antichrist will come, which means that the Antichrist is going to be Jewish from the tribe of Dan. Now, personally, I think there are some problems with that view because Daniel painstakingly, he makes the point that the Antichrist is Gentile that's going to come out of that revived Roman Empire. That seems to be the indication. Whether he comes out, he doesn't regard the God of his fathers, he has Jewish background, we don't know f for sure. But he's going to come out of that revived Roman Empire, the ten horns, the ten toes that we talked about last week or two weeks ago. And, and we know that, that Dan is not listed. Ephraim is excluded uh, as um, we see here. So those are some thoughts that are given here. Now what is interesting, one more quick note, that Ezekiel chapter 48, the roll call of the tribes when uh, speaking of the Millennium Temple. And when the roll call is taken, in the Millennium Temple that's going to be built in the Millennium Reign, that we see that Dan and Ephraim are listed once again. And I think it just speaks of the wonderful redemptive work of God. So in the Bible, you have the first temple built by Solomon, the second temple built by Zerubbabel that was remodeled by Herod, destroyed by the Romans, the third temple is the tribulation temple that will stand for a short time that the Antichrist is going to desecrate. Then there's going to be a fourth temple, the millennium temple that you read about in Ezekiel chapters 40 to the end of the book that's going to be standing in the millennium reign. There is a fifth temple, you and me. And we are a living temple unto the Lord. Will you always remember that? And we are living stones being fitted together for a holy habitation. And this, this temple that's being built right now is a living temple. You and me, as we are the temple of God, the church, you're the temple of God individually. But that's the fifth temple. And you see, in the writer of Hebrews, he talks about whose house is not made with hands. And the writer of Hebrews is making that point to those first century Hebrew believers that would miss the temple worship and, you know, the blowing of the trumpets and the feasts and all of that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you need to remember that there's a house being built not with hands. But that is you guys, the church, that are meeting in homes, your living temple, we're all being fitted together. And it's a wonderful truth that's declared to us in the scriptures. So here the 12 tribes are listed. Let's move on. Verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So after the sealing of the 144,000 in verses 5 and 8, we see another group that is mentioned here. We read a great multitude of all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues clothed in white robes. They have palm branches, which speaks of, uh, of, of victory. Uh, they are believers because they know that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So who are they? 
Well, let's read on uh, about this second group. The four living creatures and the elders breaking out in worship, verse 11. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, and blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So all the angels join in worship. They praise God for his attributes and goodness. It is not a song of redemption because angels have not been redeemed like you and me. But what an awesome scene it must be in heaven. And then verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? I think they're, I just want to stop here because I was thinking about this. I think it's an important principle that we see here. Notice that the elder initiates the conversation with John. Hey, who is this great multitude that is here? Because you who desire to be an elder, used of the Lord, whether it's an elder in your home, or maybe in the workplace, or maybe you are an elder in the church, that it tells us that we're to initiate spiritual truth and discussion. You see, very few times I've had somebody just come up to me and say, how do I get saved? Can you just tell me about Jesus Christ? Now, being a, me, a pastor, I might get a call or something like that, but, but very few people will do that with you and with me. It's very rare. But what we can do is initiate conversation to get people to think when the time is right, when the Lord opens up a door, when, when these kinds of things are, are come up for discussion at the work break or in your home, when you talk to your kids, you know, what do you think about these things? As you begin to deal with their hearts, what do you think about the Lord? And to initiate those conversations. So I want to encourage you to do that. And don't be afraid to do that as the Lord leads you. So here, you know, who are these? And in verse 14, and John responds by saying, Sir, you know. John's saying, and this is significant to me. I don't know who this great multitude is. It beats me. It's significant because there are those who see this as the church. The description is similar to the church. So the conclusion is that this is the church and we will be in the tribulation period. But here John doesn't know who they are. John, who is the one who is called the elder, and 2 John, 3 John, addressed the elder, known, he would have known if it was the church. He would have recognized them. And then we see that he is told the identity of this group as these are the ones that come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I believe that these are the tribulation saints. And the ministry, the 144,000 mentioned here, sealed by God, will be 144 evangelists is what is believed and resolved their ministry that there's going to be many that are going to get saved in the tribulation period. There's going to be revival that's going to break out. Can you imagine 144,000 Billy Grahams going throughout the world or 144,000 great glories? And, and here from every tribe's tongues, people, nations, they're getting saved. They're the tribulation saints. They washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are redeemed just as we are by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is 
is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 13, it's going to tell us the Antichrist is going to wage war against the saints and prevail. Jesus told Peter, at Caesarea Philippi, in his confession, that Peter, upon this rock, the rock of your confession, I'm going to build my church, and what? The gates of hell will not prevail. Here we see that the tribulation saints, that the Antichrist, again, will wage war. It's told to us in the book of Daniel as well, and prevail. Many are going to be beheaded. They're going to be martyred, just as Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we saw the cry of the martyrs. And I believe that this is them, the tribulation saints, and they will experience, many of them, death by the Antichrist, refusing to take his mark. They won't be able to buy. They won't be able to sell. They are left with really nothing. They will be hungry. They will be homeless. And they will be hunted. But no more when they go to heaven. Because the Lamb, Jesus Christ, he's the good shepherd that will come for them and lead them to the living fountains of water. You know, that's good news for you and for me. I was listening to somebody that was talking about how they were being persecuted by their family, and then they go to work and they get persecuted. And I want you to know that being a Christian, the world's going to hate us. It's not going to be like this where the Antichrist is not only going to persecute the tribulation saints as they refuse him and not to take his mark, but also the Jews are going to refuse him as well. We will see that he will wage war against them. That's Revelation chapter 12. They will flee to the rock city Petra to hide out a remnant of them. But Zechariah's prophecy tells us that it gives us indication that he will kill two out of every three Jews. In the Holocaust, in World War II, Hitler killed nearly one out of every three Jews. It will be worse than the Holocaust. That's how bad it's going to be. So I hope and pray for you and for me as we read these things. These are very sobering, but they bring us comfort because we live in a day of grace. There are many brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted, even put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't experience that here in our nation, but we do go through some sort of persecution by family or work or whatever the case may be. Because Paul said that in the last days it will be perilous times and evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. And as he uses that word perilous, it has the idea of what Matthew tells us concerning same word, same Greek word, when he describes the demoniacs, that they were fierce, same Greek word, that that's going to describe our last days, and that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I would not be surprised, this is my thought, that persecution against us, even in our nation, is going to get worse as we get closer to the return of the Lord. Because again, there's a restraining factor to all of these things that are going to come to full culmination when the tribulation period happens. But it's going to happen more frequently and with intensity. And we're seeing that Christians and the anti-Semitic 
kinds of attacks are happening more and more today, that does not surprise me because the Bible indicates that's what's going to happen. And don't be surprised if you and I who stand for righteousness, that as we stand on the gospel, that persecution is going to increase even in our own backyard. I think a lot of us are getting a sense of that, aren't we? But we are set apart for him. And remember this, blessed are those who are persecuted. And know this, that he is the one that's going to bring us to himself where we will neither hunger anymore or thirst anymore. There will be no more tears. And we will be brought to the living fountains of water. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I want to encourage you, if perhaps that you're going through some sort of persecution, maybe by family or friends or at work, whatever the case may be, people are coming down on you, coming against you. Hey, the Lord sees, and he's going to be faithful to you. And let's encourage one another. May this be a place where we can come and be encouraged in the Lord with one another because I really believe that it very well is rapidly going to get worse. It's going to become more intense as we get closer to the return of the Lord. And then when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to really come against the Christians and then the Jews that reject him, the Christians that say, we believe in Jesus. May we see, say that now. Because culture is screaming at us to believe in all kinds of different things, right? We believe in Jesus Christ. And when he comes back, guess who's going to be on the throne? Only Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back and rule and reign with them. So, Father, we thank you for these things that are written to us. Lord, not to frighten us, but, Lord, that we may be just prepared and comforted, knowing that I believe you're going to come and take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. You promised that in Revelation chapter 3. But, Lord, we also know that there are those that, as we don't know the day or the hour, the coming of the rapture, it could come at any time. We're to be watching. We're to be waiting. We see the signs that are happening more frequently in intensity. The storm clouds are gathering. The signs are there that tell us that we're in the last days. And, Lord, I pray that we would take the exhortation that we learned on Sunday to wake out of sleep and know that the evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse. I pray for revival in our nation in the last days. I pray for a revival of people coming to Jesus Christ. But I also know that the enemy is working overtime to bring people away from you and a nation away from you, and a world, to bring darkness and deception and confusion because he's a murderer and a liar, Jesus said. And so, Lord, I pray that as we stand for you for truth, that we would encourage one another and be reminded that you will be faithful to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted because great will be our reward. And we have victory 
victory in the blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. And we will be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I thank you that we can be comforted when we leave this place. The Lord in our weakness make us strong. And in the sadness, Lord, bring us joy. And in the sorrow, Lord, bring gladness. And Lord, through the difficulties, help us remember the promise that you give to us of eternal life. Lord, help us keep our eyes on you. And Lord, that we would give truth to others. And the only hope that there is, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray if there's anyone here that came in tonight that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is your salvation. There is none other. There is none other. And that's what the Word of God clearly tells us. That salvation only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ being forgiven, believing that he rose from the grave and he's the son of God at the right hand of the Father. And he loves you. And that's why he went to the cross to die for your sins. So if you're here and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, will you do that now? Because today is the day of salvation. To make a decision for Jesus Christ. Don't make a decision for the world. Make a decision for him. And you can do that right now. It's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. It has eternal consequences. And you can pray sincerely in your heart that I come to you, Jesus, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You're alive, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me, for the hope that you give to me, in right relationship with the Father for this new beginning I have that I belong to a kingdom that will be established forever I thank you in Jesus name and if you prayed that prayer as we close here in just one minute that you come up and tell the prayer team that's over to my right tell them the decision that you made for all of us may we keep our eyes on you and our hand to the plow Lord and to realize that everything that's taking place right now is all culminating to something. So Lord, may we keep vigilant and strong in you and dedicated to you and true to you because you're true to us. So Lord, thank you for tonight. Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?